Good morning, everyone. I'm so grateful that uh, you would join us from here in our area, in our Family Life Church, but also from around the states and around the world. We're grateful that you're here. Uh, Karen and I wanted to just be sure to thank all of you for your support during this time of loss of her mother. We are so grateful for your well wishes, your thoughts, your prayers, your cards, your texts, your messages. Uh, and of course, I especially want to thank you for all of the amazing food and desserts that you have brought. Uh, part of what you don't see that goes on here in this empty sanctuary so that we can actually produce this for you is that I make sure that our photographer, our videographer, make sure that the camera doesn't see me from the waist down so that you don't know that I have to wear uh, sweatpants because I've gained so much weight from all of your food. But I do want to thank you for your kindness to us. And it is amazing being a part of a larger family that shares the impact of such loss with us. Um, during this crisis, when it first hit, what I tried to do was to share a couple of messages that would just encourage us to remember that God is in control. God has this. He's not been caught by surprise. This didn't somehow shock God and He's scrambling, trying to come up with a plan to help us. But that it, it's okay. It really is. And that we're going to make it through this. This is not the end. So the first couple of messages that I spoke via live stream was along that line. I was reminded, reminded recently by a friend <clears throat> that when David went into quarantine, because he had to hide in a cave for fear of his life. So he was quarantined in this cave. When David went into the cave, he went into the cave as a captive, as it were, but he came out as a captain of the Lord's army. And those who joined with him came in as whiners, but they went out as warriors. And I think we have that same opportunity during this time where we ask this very, very important question. What is God doing in me during all of this? What is God doing in the world? Yes. But what is God doing inside of me during this? And then the next two messages dealt with the Passion Week of our Lord. Uh, the Palm Sunday service and then of course our Easter Sunday service. But today, I want to go way back. Uh, before any of this quarantine hit, we were in the middle of a series called Relationships 101, the Ten Commandments of Relationships. And what I have tried to do during all of this is to blend together the Ten Commandments that God gave us in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, along with the sense that we are all in the middle of relational dynamics every day, whether it be in our marriages or in our families, in our homes, or at work or at school. So how can these 10 rhythms of life, that I like to call them, help us to live these relationships out in a more healthy, authentic way? <clears throat> many, many people think of the Ten Commandments as just a bunch of rules and regulations of do's and don'ts. But I think it's about far more than that. I think it's God's way of saying, when you do life my way, it works better for you because I'm the one who made you. 
So today we're going to jump right back into that series. Uh, I was reminded this week of a Sunday school teacher who was actually teaching her Sunday school children the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and she had just finished, honor your father and your mother. That's something that Pastor Jonathan preached to us, oh man, many weeks ago now. <clears throat> but she was just finishing out that commandment. And so she then turned to her students and said, can you think of a commandment that deals with how we're to treat our brothers and sisters? And immediately one of the young boys raised his hands and said, thou shalt not kill. Well, that is actually our text for today. And uh, it, it is probably the shortest of the Ten Commandments. And it reads this way in Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Four words in English, two words in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word for murder, or some of your translations might say kill, is the Hebrew word ratzak. Sounds kind of Klingon, doesn't it? But it literally means to kill a human being, particularly by murderous intent. So it's not just generally killing, which we're going to actually look at in a moment. It is specifically to murder with the intent to do harm. I, I know that some of you are thinking that we can just skip this one because, well, you're probably not thinking of killing anybody. Frequently, anyways. Um, Maybe when you're on the road behind some dim-witted driver that doesn't know what that little lever on the left-hand side of your steering wheel is for, maybe that drives you into some level of murderous intent. Or, or maybe it's when, uh, as I hear my wife so often, in a chat with a store representative trying to explain to them their store policy about what free return actually means. And it drives you crazy. Or maybe it's listening to politicians saying stupid things like one said recently, we should stop feeding the elderly, especially dementia patients, because it's wasting our precious resources. Or maybe it's some of the rhetoric surrounding COVID-19 that has just driven you mad sometimes. My guess, though, is that in our church, which is a stellar group of true blue followers of Jesus, my guess is that probably we don't have more than 10 or 15 murderers in our midst. So I agree that not a whole lot of you need this message. Unless, during this pandemic quarantine, you're like my father-in-law, who years ago was once asked, Brother Edwards, <clears throat> have you ever considered divorce? And his response was, divorce? Never. Murder? Yes. But divorce? Never. And maybe in the midst of the crunch of being stuck together during this quarantine, you have struggled with this whole idea of murder a little bit. Clarence Darrow once said, I haven't killed anybody but I've read a lot of obituaries with glee. Take a moment and just think about the implication of this sixth rhythm of life, the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Think about the implications for our families, for our relationships. 
Researchers suggest that by the time the average American child reaches sixth grade, they have already witnessed over 8,000 murders and over 100,000 acts of violence on television. And that's not counting the old cartoons Roadrunner or The Three Stooges or Stan and Laurel. I'm talking about real-life murders and acts of violence. We live in an angry, violent society. Every 30 and a half minutes in America, somebody is either stabbed, shot, beaten, poisoned, or strangled to death. And I want to add, or all of them. We live in an angry, murderous society. Did you know that more kids in the U.S. die from violence than from illness? Think about that. More kids die from violence in our homes than from illness. My wife and I were watching a movie last evening called I Can Only Imagine. And I was reminded watching this movie, which I would highly recommend, by the way, of the violence that I grew up with in my home. You never knew when my father might explode and you most times had no idea what might set him off. We live in that kind of society today. Thou shalt not murder. It seems pretty straightforward, but I think in some ways it's rarely thought about and often misunderstood. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at this commandment in relationship to our families, the society in which we live, but I want to look at it in three, maybe four different ways. <clears throat> First, I want to talk about the why. Why did God feel the need to give this commandment? And I think it's very simply because we so easily forget that every single human being on this planet is made in the image of God. Remember, go back to the very beginning. Genesis 1.27. God created man, or really the word ought to be mankind. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is a big deal because what it says is that every single man, woman, and child from President Trump to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, from avowed atheist Brad Pitt to avowed strong Christian Kirk Cameron, from the most spiritual person you know to the most evil person you know, I want you to think about this. Every single one of them is made in the image of God. Every one of them has the spark of God inside of them. And we are called by God in this commandment to live aware of that image by our behavior, by our words, by our attitudes, in how we treat people. And during this quarantine where it's easy to rub up against each other, you're stuck at home. I mean, there are people that I've heard about that the spouse is having to work from home and mom's trying to keep the kids quiet. In the midst of all of it, have you found that sometimes you have found yourself lashing out in ways that might seem unusual in your normal life? 
You can't legitimately say you believe in the sanctity of life and then speak hatefully and despise others just because you don't like their politics or their personality. The value of human life from conception right to life's final breath is determined by this commandment where God says, you shall not murder because I've put my image, my life inside of them. What this means is that everyone, everyone is deserving of our respect, of treating them as image bearers of the living God. That's the big why. But now I want us to look very briefly at what this commandment isn't saying. Because I have heard this commandment used for things that I think take it so far out of context and out of its intent that it's almost shameful. The first thing I think this commandment doesn't say is it doesn't prohibit hunting or killing animals for food. <clears throat> Genesis 9.3, God's word says, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. So hunting is allowed. In, in our little church here in Wyoming County, where we boast about the fact that we have more cows than people, hunting's a big deal around here. I can tell you that uh, growing up, I hunted a lot. In fact, I hunted until 1996 when my father passed. Part of the reason for that is that I didn't so much love hunting as I wanted to be able to have something that I could do with my dad. I can't honestly remember exactly the last time I went hunting, but I, I think it was the last time I killed the turkey. I can remember thinking at the time, it was a great shot, but all of the other customers in the frozen food section didn't seem so pleased with my shot, so I just quit hunting then. The Bible makes it clear, though, that hunting, killing animals for food, is allowable. The second thing this commandment doesn't say is that capital punishment is wrong. In fact, I have heard people talk about capital punishment using this scripture as its context, which I think is doing disservice because there are other scriptures that say otherwise. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. God's saying this image thing is so serious that if you take someone's life, if you disrespect, dishonor that image, it becomes a capital offense. In order to maintain order in society, God ordained that human government would have the right to establish capital punishment. Romans 13, 4 and 5 says this, The government is God's servant working for your good, but if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. The government has the right to carry out the death sentence. It's God's servant, an avenger to execute God's anger on anyone who does what is wrong. Now, i got to confess, I struggle with this one because I so believe in God's power to redeem anyone or any situation. One of my favorite scriptures is Ezekiel 33:11. And it says this: Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, 
I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked rather turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? I believe in redemption. I believe that there is no one beyond the power of the draw of God's Holy Spirit. And because of that, I struggle with this. But I kind of hold these two dynamics in tension with one another. I recognize that God's word provides for the principle of capital punishment. But I also recognize that God's redemption allows for salvation. I recognize the principle is right. But the procedure by which even in our nation we carry out capital punishment often leaves us begging the question of whether this is true justice. Recognizing that there are many, even within our system of jurisprudence, who are immorally and even illegally incarcerated. So I hold it in tension. I believe that capital punishment is allowed. But I also believe it ought to be by far, by far, by far a last resort. The third thing that this commandment does not prohibit is war. In my scripture reading this year, I was reminded in Ecclesiastes 3.18, there's a time for war and a time for peace. On a national level, there are some things worth fighting for and there are some things worth dying for. I believe it was Edmund Burke who said, all that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. I believe that there are some things in a national aspect that allows for us to fight for our rights as a sovereign nation. But I think war ought to always be a last resort. So that was the what it doesn't say. We've looked at the why, we've looked at the what. Now I want to look at the why, or the how rather. How this commandment applies to us. Did you know that the very first murder that's recorded in history occurred in the Bible when Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, killed his brother Abel? So it occurred within the confines of the relationships of brother to brother within a family. And statistically, did you know that most violent crimes, most murders occur within families or friends' relationships to the tune of 80%? Maybe you think murder is just something that occurs in, I don't know, Detroit or L.A. or New York City. I mean, what's New York City's population now? Eight and a half million people or something like that? I don't know. But even here in Wyoming County, with a population of only about 40,000 people, murder has hit us. In 1993, we had just moved here very recently before that. In 1993, a young basketball star from Letchworth High School, a well-liked young man, killed his girlfriend and threw her body over the gorge in Letchworth Park and then went back to his school where he was going to play a basketball game that evening, and he was found washing the blood off his hands by his coach. In 1997, a seven-year-old little girl 
had her body buried in a field by her mother's fiancé. And then just last year, a retired sergeant for the Wyoming County Sheriff's Department killed a young man who was about to reveal that this sergeant had been abusing young men. Murder is all over the place. Violence and anger is all over the place. God says we're not to murder. That doesn't speak to the issues of hunting or capital punishment or even war. But what does this refer to that applies to us? And I'm going to take this in a somewhat different direction than maybe you would. But this is what I felt to do as I prepared. I want to say, first of all, murder means God says no to suicide. Did you know that suicide is the number two killer among college students and the number three killer among high school students? More kids are killed by suicide than by traffic accidents. There are approximately 50,000 suicides each year in the United States of America. Now, I beg you, I plead with you, please hear my heart and hear what I believe is God's heart. This shouldn't be addressed as an issue of whether or not suicide is an unforgivable sin. I don't think that's the issue at all. I think the issue that we ought to be asking ourselves is, what is driving people? What is motivating our youth? Driving them to such hopelessness and despair that they would take their own life. Because death seems better than living as they have been. Personally, I don't think Suicide is unforgivable. I think God is a merciful God. But I think the issue we ought to grapple with is what are the stresses and tensions at work in our homes, in our marriages, in the workplace, in our schools, perhaps through bullying? What are the things that are driving people to give up hope and take their own life and to believe that life just isn't worth living anymore? I know that in the U.S. the suicide rate is too high. But I think the numbers would be even higher if we included those who had thought about it, but either failed in their attempt and it was never discovered, or for whatever reason they just at the last moment made the decision not to do it. I think those numbers would be even higher. In fact, in this live stream audience, it's possible that some of you here today have considered suicide at times. Maybe even now, you're finding that life feels hopeless to you, worthless as it is, and you're actually... Cons- maybe you've never put the word suicide to it, but maybe as you've been driving down the road, you've thought, what if I just took my hands off the wheel and let the car veer off into that cement pillar? I don't think anyone would care. I don't think anyone would miss me anyways. Some of you have thought, 
if I'm gone, life would be better for others. Because you feel like you're somehow the center of all of the tension and uproar in your home. Some of you have even thought, it's my life, I can do what I want with it. But that's not really true. You were created with the image of God inside of you. And God says you're not your own. You've been bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. Job 14.5 says that even before you were born, God determined your days, your months, and your years. So it's not your life to take. It's His life. And He has purpose for you. He has hope for you. Some of you have felt despair enough to say, is life worth living? Maybe being forced to stay at home and getting no break from one another has left you so upset. I've already heard from friends whose marriages are struggling in this time. And I do understand. Sometimes it's just the erosion of hope because things keep piling up and never get better. I can remember as a young boy growing up, many times daydreaming about ways in which my life could be taken or I could at least be maimed in the hopes that maybe then, maybe just then, my father would finally notice me and care. And maybe for you, you have felt some of those same things. Sometimes it can feel like no matter what you do, it just doesn't get better. I get it. I really do. And even more importantly, God gets it. But I want you to hear me. Your life matters because God dwells within you. And he has purpose for you and for your life. When my wife and I go down to Myrtle Beach, which we do whenever we can on our vacation, we love watching the ocean. But I have learned a lesson watching the ocean. The tide goes out, but it also comes back in. And maybe in your life you feel like the tide has gone out. And when the tide goes out, sometimes it leaves the shore looking not so pretty. There's driftwood there. There's broken shells. There's junk that people have left behind. So it's not so pretty right now when the tide goes out. But I promise you, the tide will come back in. And when it comes back in, it cleans that shore and it's all pristine again. One of the things I want for our church is that we would be a safe place for people who are struggling. Years ago, my father-in-law used to say to me, church was never intended to be a museum where we showcase the best and the brightest. It was intended to be a hospital for people who are broken and need healing. I want us to be that kind of church where people can be safe to struggle together with us. Because when you do it together, it helps. We draw strength from one another. Sometimes life's struggles aren't pretty. They're messy. But when we stand together shoulder to shoulder and say, I care about you, don't give up, it helps us to get through. If you've been thinking that your life is not worth the living, I want you to know God cares. And I care. And this church cares. Don't give up hope. 
God says no to suicide, not because he's angry at you when you have those thoughts or those feelings. He's angry at the enemy, Satan himself, who's trying to rob you of hope and purpose. God says no to suicide. And God says no to euthanasia. Euthanasia comes from two Greek words, which means good death. Now, in our culture, there's a lot of discussion about quality of life. And the older I get, the more I understand that discussion. But euthanasia is defined as causing the death of someone either because of inconvenience to the caregiver and family or because you or they don't think their life is worth the dignity of living anymore as it is. All too often, it's us playing God with someone's life, even our own life. Over these last five years, and especially these last two years, as we have cared for Karen's mother of 96 years, it was with the awareness that much of our care could seem an indignity to many. The deeper truth is, though, we did what we did out of love for her, recognizing that whether she could hear us or not, whether she could understand us or not, whether she could just lie in bed all day long, she was still made in the image of God. And she was worthy of our care because God loved her and we loved her. Her dignity was often lacking because she couldn't do anything for herself. We had to do everything for her. Feeding her, giving her to drink, giving her her pills, getting her ready for bed, all of it. Things that normally at this stage of life, we take care of ourselves and that's part of our dignity is that we can take care of it. I can do it myself. A little child growing up gets to a point where they can say, Mommy, I can do it myself. But at the end of her life, she couldn't do it herself anymore. And we had to do it all. Cleaning her, bathing her. But everything that we did was intended to lend love and care to her dignity as an image bearer of God. Towards the end, my wife, Karen, would every night, after we had finished all of the routine of getting her ready for bed, would look at her mom and she would say to her mom, Mom, I love you. She would say it out loud even though we knew her mom could not hear a word we were saying. And then my wife would simply use sign language. She would say, I love you. And she would do it several times. And sometimes her mom wouldn't respond at all. Sometimes she would smile. Sometimes she would nod. But every once in a while, she would say back, I love you too. All of that was done because we believed she was worthy of dignity. And we wanted to lend dignity to her in this time of indignity. God's Word, and I believe God's Spirit, says we don't have the right to determine whether a person is worthy or unworthy. And I do wonder how often the assessments about euthanasia have more to do with our sense of convenience and the cost to us than it has to do about a person's worth and dignity. 
This is a, a, a very relevant issue for us right now with the passing of Karen's mom and what we have had to do over all of these months and years. Was it tiring? Yes. We grew weary at times. Was it frustrating? Yes. But everything we did, we did because we believed it was important for us, for her, important in the sight of God, and important for our society to know that there are a people that believe everyone is made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity. I also did it knowing that there would be those around watching us. I didn't do it so that they would be impressed. My wife never had that as our thought. But we wanted them to know, even though our society might say otherwise, you really are worth it. Jesus said, how you care for the least of these is how you care for him. So whether it be people like my mother-in-law who were bed-bound and towards the end unresponsive, or whether it be those friends of ours from the DDSO houses who come in their wheelchairs every Sunday, all of them are worthy of our love, our honor, and the dignity that we lend to them. And by the way, I think how you care for these ailing elderly loved ones is a model that you're giving your children. So we've often said to our kids, pay attention. Because what we've done for mom, I hope one day you'll do for us. I'm not saying, by the way, that I think nursing homes are wrong or any of that stuff. We just made the decision we wanted mom and dad to live with us and we wanted to take care of them right to the end. And by God's grace, we're grateful that we could. God says no to suicide. God says no to euthanasia. And God says no to abortion. Psalm 139 says this, You created every part of me. You put me together in my mother's womb. When my bones were being formed, carefully put together in my mother's womb, when I was growing there in secret, you knew that I was there. You saw me before I was born. The days allotted to me had all been recorded in your book before any of them ever began. God's word attests to the truth that that embryo that develops into a fetus is not just a glob of tissue in the womb of a woman. It's an actual life. A baby that's being developed. A human being worthy of the same honor and dignity that my mother-in-law was worthy of at age 96. From a human viewpoint, we might well have unplanned pregnancies, surprises, but I want you to know there are no accidents and there are no illegitimate babies in God's eyes. There are no accidental human beings. We all know the facts about abortion. Approximately 20% of all pregnancies in America end in abortion today. Approximately 863,000 abortions in the U.S. annually. Over 60 million Americans have been killed through abortions. More than all of our wars put together. Less than 1% of abortions are because of rape or incest or because the life of the mother is endangered and simply because the mother believed 
it was an inconvenient to bear a child at that time in her life. Something that I found really ironic that I had not seen before that I discovered in my research this week is that feminists who have promoted abortion rights and the right of a woman to make a choice have now discovered because of recent technology that they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt earlier and earlier the gender of the babies that are being aborted and there are more female babies aborted than male babies. And so what I found ironic is one of their actual bumper stickers now states, support unborn woman's rights. They support abortion, but they support unborn woman's rights. Someone has argued no child should be brought into this world unwanted. I want to say, what, what, what a fallacious argument. Because you forget, God wants that baby. And someone, somewhere, wants that baby. This is where, though, I believe that as a church, and I speak as our church, but also the church of Christ around the world, where as a church we have made a mistake, we have erred. We have strongly emphasized that abortion is sin, and I believe abortion is sin. I believe abortion is the murder of that unborn child. But in emphasizing that, we have picketed, we have taken out full-page ads decrying the evils and the sin of abortion. We have blocked access to Abortion mills at times. We have put out little crosses in front of our churches to let people know how evil this is. We've given money to see agents of abortion put out of business. And some, in the name of protecting the unborn, have even killed abortionists. But all of that was done, I believe, neglecting to look at what has caused women to be driven to the point where they believe the wiser, better choice for them is to take this life. What are the issues in her life that has caused her to even consider this or to take that step? I believe in talking to women now who have had abortions that sometimes the pressures of abandonment, of being abandoned by the father of that child, being abandoned by her family, rejected by her family, even rejected by society at times, rejected by the church at times, has left them feeling so alone that their only hope of having a reasonable life was to take that life out. I think we've neglected to ask the hard questions. We have put so much emphasis upon this sin of abortion, and it is sin that we've forgotten to ask, what's the pain inside that's driven you to this? I wonder sometimes if we would not be better promoting places like we do here in our own town, Lighthouse Station, where they take in mothers who have oftentimes been left alone and teach them how to take care of their baby, how to eat healthy, how to deliver a baby and what would be expected and at times even how to put your baby up for adoption rather than just to take that baby's life. I think that rather than just say that abortion is a sin, 
if we're going to say every life has value, then the life of that mother has equal value. We ought to ask, what can we do to help that mother do what we believe is the right thing, but actually do it fully with our support and with our love? Just as it's possible that there were people listening today to my words who had considered suicide, it's possible that there are some of you today who have actually had an abortion. Maybe you're a woman who's had an abortion, or maybe you're a man who promoted the woman having the abortion to save your reputation and your penny. What would I say to all of you? As I thought about it this week, I thought I wanted to say to you, number one, we love you. And we're for you. We want to understand better what drove you to take the life of your baby. We're also so grateful that you've taken all of your fears, all of your guilt, maybe even all of your shame, if that's what you're feeling, and you've brought it to God and you've brought it to the house of God. We're grateful that you had the courage to come and to say, I need God desperately now. Yes, I've done this, but I still need God. I want you to know we love you, we for you, and we accept you. We embrace you as the loved daughter and son of God. I don't know if most people think about it, but a large portion of the Bible was written by murderers. Moses, David, and even Paul. Men who did that, which this commandment says shouldn't be occurring, but they did it. But they found forgiveness from God And I think that's what grace is about. So today, in these Ten Commandments, in this Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, I offer you grace. Grace. Grace from God. I've known people who have committed murder. I've known people who have been serving time in prison for murder. And I've known those same people who found the grace of God. And His grace is offered to you today. I entitled today's message, The Murderer in Me. Because not only does God's Word talk about the possibility that physically any of us could commit murder, but Jesus takes it a step further. He says, sometimes that murder occurs in our heart. Maybe we never commit the act, but we daydream about it. And God's grace is just as available to us. The murderer that's inside of me. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus says this, and I love the heading. The heading says, murder begins in the heart. But it says this, you have heard it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, so Jesus takes it to another level, that whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. 1 John 3 says this, This is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see, the New Testament takes that commandment to another whole level. It says, 
when you're angry, when you despise people, when you denigrate people in your heart, you are as guilty as if you'd already committed murder. And this has to do with um, how you treat people, how you speak to people, how you think about people, whether it be uh, racial issues or ethnicities or even sexual identity issues. I've heard preachers from the pulpit boasting about the fact that they prayed and God took that hurricane that was headed straight for them and He turned it and He made it hit this homosexual beach. And say it with glee, forgetting that God loves them every bit as much as He loves those who are sitting in that church. As we close today, I want to just take a moment and ask you, be honest with yourself. Are you an angry person? Do you find that often what rises up in you is anger and judgment? Even hatred? Do you find yourself angry about our politicians now and what they're doing to our freedom? As if somehow being an American trumps being a Christian where Jesus tells us to lay down our rights? Remember, it was Jesus who said, if a Roman unrighteously asks for your coat, give him your shirt too. In other words, instead of fighting against your rights being abridged somehow, why not just give your life for the sake of the gospel? Are you an angry, judgmental person? Do you find yourself easily frustrated and upset at home during this quarantine? Jesus made it clear that our anger, what's going on inside, is the foundation for murderous activity. God says He wants a home with those who are of a humble and contrite spirit. In these days of quarantine, as we're kind of all locked in together, husbands and wives, parents and children, the daily grind with no break, it can begin to wear on you. I know there have been times during this season when my wife and I have had to say, I'm sorry to each other because we spoke sharply or abruptly in ways that were unnecessary. We've had to have conversations just clarifying what's in our heart even if it didn't come out right. And maybe you've had to do the same. But I want to give you an opportunity today as we end to just kind of close your eyes, bow your heads, and just say, Jesus, if nothing else, this time has revealed some stuff that's in me that I'm asking you to deal with. Maybe some anger has arisen in you. Some frustration. Maybe it's been anger at your spouse or your children or your parents. Maybe it's been anger at the government overstepping their authority. I don't know what it is, but we're saying, Jesus, what do you want to do in me during this time? And when this kind of anger, which doesn't work the righteousness of God, arises, we're saying, Jesus, come in. I want you to deal with my heart. Make me more like you, Jesus. Would you just pray with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we want to attest to the truth that these Ten Commandments, in this particular commandment, thou shalt not murder. It's not just an archaic code. It's you telling us how to do life better and more authentically. And Lord, we know for every one of us, there have been times when 
we've had anger arise within us. Sometimes it's such anger even at ourselves that it has gone over the line into suicidal kind of thoughts. Sometimes it's us thinking ill of others and so we have thoughts of euthanasia saying, you know, they're, they're not worthy of our time and our money, our effort. Or at other times, we've treated the unborn like they're an intrusion upon our lives. Lord, whether it be actual murderous thoughts or anger or whatever of those categories it is, we're saying, Lord, would you not come in and change our heart? Make me more like you. And during this season, I'm asking you, Jesus, for me and for my friends, that you would cause us to be conformed to the image of your Son whom you love. That that which is in us would be changed from glory to glory. I pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless each of you and have a great rest of your day.